Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Feminist Food Stories. This podcast comes as part of our city issue, and I talked to Alison Hope Alcon about her co-edited volume, A Recipe for Gentrification, which focuses on the links between food and gentrification in large and mid-sized cities in the U.S. and Canada. The book has many wonderful contributions, and it looks at how not only are food retail and restaurants often the first signifier of gentrification, a fact which many of us might already intuitively know and recognize, but initiatives in the city that are often seen as uniquely positive, like urban agriculture, can actually also encourage gentrification. Gentrification in this volume is broadly explained by two theoretical frameworks. One of the city as a growth machine, with gentrification being powered by structural forces of capital and profit investment. The other relates to the cultural geographies of food and how gentrification can be driven by the taste of newcomers, including material and discursive meetings around what food is authentic, local, and enjoyable. Alison and I talk about what the book shows about the social construction of authentic food and how this links to gentrification, and also how the concept of authentic food links to gender and the wider links between gender, food, gentrification, and policing. We also talk about the problematic side of urban agriculture and some examples from people who have both given into the pressures of gentrification in the face of their gardens causing rising prices in an area, but also how they pushed back. This gets to a central point of the book, which is also that these forces are often entangled in a messy way, and well-meaning actors can sometimes enable gentrification by mistake. Long-standing residents, for example, might have to partake in it to survive, and it also looks at the ways that we can resist the forces. Finally, Allison also considers how traditional patterns of gentrification could be changing in the context of rising global land speculation. I'll let Allison introduce herself in a second, but first, I want to acknowledge that we were joined by a very special guest. This is my four-year-old. You can't see him, but here he is. Hi! What's your name? Micah. Micah, nice to meet you. I'm Isabella. I'm right now, I'm on the phone from Spain. I think you have a grandpa there. No, we do. Yeah. She's in Spain where Tilo's from. Okay, so I need to talk to Isabella for a little while. Can you go upstairs and watch some videos and talk to Papa? Wake up, Papa. It's his turn. And if that doesn't make you think of feminist food, I don't know what will. Okay, I have locked the door. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Um, It's a perfect conversation for our city issue. And to start off, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Sure. Uh, My name is Allison Hope Alcon. I am a professor of sociology at University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. Um, And I have been writing and teaching and thinking about food justice issues, especially in Northern California, but kind of as a lens to think about them more broadly for most of the past 20 years. Food was not as big of a of a thing to think about intellectually or for academics when I first got started. And so my training was in environmental sociology and thinking about the ways that environmental sustainability and kind of social and racial justice could did overlap or could be brought to overlap so that sustainability movements would have more broad popular appeal, especially among people who had already been marginalized by things like racial capitalism and neoliberalism, where I felt like there was there was a potential synthesis that wasn't really happening. Just to think about, you know, how do we 
how do how do we convince folks who really care about environmental sustainability that social and racial justice are like an important part of the conversation? And that felt kind of politically important at that moment. It felt new and exciting at that moment. In the U.S., at least, I think about a lot of this uh, coinciding with the publication of Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma, which was like a big best-selling book that came out in 2006. And all of a sudden, everyone wanted to think about food systems as a way to think about environmental sustainability. Uh, that book did a really terrible job of thinking about social and racial justice, in my opinion. And so there was a lot of room for critique. Um, and there were people that were making this critique, both academically, like Julie Guthman is someone whose shoulders I stand on a lot, and also in activist circles. And so my training is in ethnography, which is a research method where you kind of get involved with the work you're trying to understand on the ground. You get to know people in it. Uh, you watch what they do. You listen to what they say. And you try to represent their point of view, which is very difficult to do when you're talking across social distances, especially interested in kind of what are the worldviews that inspire people to see farmers markets and local sustainable food systems more generally as a part of like the project of what they should be doing in the world. And how do those differ among historically redlined marginalized black communities and historically privileged affluent white communities? And so that kind of launched everything else that I've, I've done and thought about since then. As I mentioned earlier, Allison also co-edited the volume, A Recipe for Gentrification, Food, Power, and Resistance in the City, along with Yuki Kato and Joshua Spika. This one really digs into the complex interlinkages between food, urban development, and a neoliberal context and cultural and economic gentrification, as well as the right to the city. Um, and of course, Allison, this is our city issue. So I was wondering if maybe we could start off with you just telling us, what does the right to the city mean to you? The right to the city, for like for me, um, I think about the right to the city largely in the context of gentrification. And I know that that's not the only angle on it, but that's the angle that's been the most relevant to my work. And it is, you know, it's like to think about it more as like the right to stay put or the right to be in and make place in cities. Um, and I think about it as how ordinary people can come to cities or can stay in cities and have the things that they need for safe, healthy, meaningful lives. And how does food justice play into that definition? One of those things is food. So that may mean anything from the right to have access to be able to purchase the kind of food you want in the city. It may mean having access to some green space to be able to grow food in the city. And it means having access to public space to be able to gather around food um, and to have food be part of that gathering. Um, there was an issue in Oakland several years ago that I think really became iconic, at least if you live in the Bay Area, uh, where there's this man-made lake in Oakland called Lake Merritt, and there's kind of green space all around the lake. A lot of people like walk or bike around it. And um, on the weekends, especially in the summer, like groups gather and barbecue and drink. And sometimes there's music and food trucks, and sometimes it's just people hanging out. Um, but there's kind of a lot of cultural life happens at the lake. Um, 
And there was an issue several years ago where there was a black family that was barbecuing and like technically you're not supposed to have barbecues, but it's so incredibly common that like I never knew that. Um, and a white woman called the cops on them for barbecuing. And she became known as barbecue, uh, barbecue Becky. I'm sure her name's not Becky, but this was before Karen became the name of choice for a certain kind of white woman who sticks her nose where it, it doesn't necessarily belong. Um, so barbecue Becky became kind of a symbol of the ways that not just public space was policed, but particularly gatherings around food were policed. Um, and so to me, that's really the antithesis of the right to the city where um, I don't know if Becky, which I'll call her because I don't remember her real name. Um, I don't know if she was a new resident, like a recent resident or a long-term resident, but I know the family she called the police on had been in Oakland for a very long time. Black folks who have been in their neighborhoods for a long time have all been subject to the effects of redlining, segregation, right? Being only allowed to live in certain neighborhoods, being uh, denied or not even having the access to apply for certain kinds of loans that white families were able to apply for both to improve certain kinds of, to improve their, their urban housing stock or to leave the city for the suburbs if that was their desire. Um, you know, there's a whole history of the way that race is written onto the American urban landscape. Uh, and at every step, it has disadvantaged Black families and advantaged white families. And so to take a, a Black family that's been in Oakland for generations and tell them that they don't have the right to use public space in the way that is A, not hurting anybody else, and B, makes their life healthy and meaningful and nice, right, and enjoyable, um, is, is to me like the antithesis of the right to the city. Thinking about barbecued Becky made me think about the ways that gentrification, gender, food, and policing can be intertwined. I asked Allison if she'd come across any other links between these topics in her research. I think a lot about the ways that gentrification and criminalization go hand in hand, where when a space starts to gentrify, um, residents, like long-term residents of that neighborhood are criminalized. I know in North Oakland, they passed a kind of ordinance that um, that really, you know, no matter, regardless of what it was like intended to do in its, in its um, explicit language, it had the effect of criminalizing young Black men in a, in a new way. It was like a new tool for that kind of criminalization. And I didn't feel like the connect, like the connection may not have necessarily been about food, but it was certainly about criminalizing Black youth so that incoming white folks would feel more comfortable. And Often that comfort is framed around white women's access to the right to the city and access to public space and how white women like me won't feel comfortable in public space if black and brown youth can do their right to the city, right, can do their placemaking work there. Allison goes on to describe how food businesses, namely food retail and food restaurants, can go on to disrupt this placemaking work for racialized communities food becomes the target for vandalism, you know, anti-gentrification vandalism or for like broken windows or things like that and then gets held up by new white residents and boosters about how like, oh, we have to criminalize the long-term community in order to protect these new food spaces for white people. Because food businesses are often the kind of early gentrifiers, 
you get the cafe and the coffee shop before you get the yoga studio and the doggy daycare. Right, just to go through the kind of what I think of as the iconic gentrification businesses. Although these days in the Bay Area, what I'm seeing is a is a kind of new level of super gentrification than it was when I started doing this work, where you you don't necessarily get the like young white hipster who wants to open a coffee shop. You get it starts with the developer building some huge complex and then leasing out the the ground floor retail to food businesses. This touches on the two theories behind gentrification that I mentioned in the introduction to this podcast. One on the city as a growth machine, with gentrification being powered by structural drivers, and the other one looking at gentrification as more of a cultural process of the construction of local, quote-unquote, authentic food, and whose tastes are suited to it. I think that's one of the big debates in gentrification research that where is it like this kind of cultural process of like new white so-called pioneers um, making space for themselves in a historically marginalized neighborhood full of people of color? Or is it really about, you know, kind of thinking about Neil Smith's work, like, is it about the forces of uneven development and racial capitalism that see a rent gap between the rents they could pay? And he uses rent to talk about sale prices, too. It's a very British take on it. Rent doesn't mean rent. But he sees a rent gap between what a property is available for at the present moment and what investors think might be the long-term investments of it. Um, and so when that rent gap seems lucrative enough, the forces of kind of cat racial capitalism move in and then do the cultural work as an afterthought, right? Or the cultural work happens later. They like lease it to cultural, cultural create. I hate the word creatives as like some people are creative and other people aren't, but like to people who are going to run the kinds of businesses that will give the neighborhood the cachet that they're looking for. Mm. And maybe we can touch on that a little bit, like what gives this cachet, like the construction, say, of like local food and authentic food and how these constructions feed in to both structural gentrification, cultural drivers of gentrification and how these constructions come to be made in gentrifying parts of the city. I think your book has a few examples of foods that are considered, quote unquote, authentic to place, say, like a taco being repurposed into a restaurant where white affluent eaters feel comfortable in that space and it becomes like palatable to them. I know we were talking earlier about gender dynamics and it's something I'm just sort of thinking about now. You know, traditionally, of course, women do most of the, the work when it comes to food work from sourcing to preparation to cooking. And if I had to guess, I would imagine that a lot of the restaurants that end up then repurposing these quote unquote authentic foods to a more affluent public are probably owned and led by men. I mean, most restaurants in general are owned and led by men. So, of course, you know, and I think about it's kind of taking, it's appropriating the work of racialized women. And I also think about sometimes like racialized women in some ways, they're put, you know, at the forefront of these businesses symbolically because the feminization of this labor is a selling point, right? Like, you know, it's like abuelas tacos or this kind of thing. I mean, it's like a modern day Aunt Jemima, you know, where like her physical presence on the label legitimate thing about the product right um and yeah you're right these days like abuelita like hot cocoa or uh yeah abuela's recipe um there was an uh there was a big explosion in portland like maybe five or six years ago there were these two like young white women who went backpacking around mexico and they learned some recipes from some abuelas in their words um and then they came back and opened i believe it was like a taco food truck 
And there was a big outcry about appropriation and this idea of like, should they legitimately be sharing these recipes um, and making a living off of these recipes? And I think that the debates about cultural appropriation and food are, are difficult to navigate because for a bunch of reasons, it very easily slips into like, oh, so can you never eat any food that's not from your own culture? And like, nobody is saying that, right? But the question of, it needs to be understood in its economic context where these young white girls had access to financing, family financing, access to loans because of the racialized nature of capitalism that those abuelas in Mexico were never going to be able to get, right? And so when it becomes this question about like the fairness of who can cook and eat what kind of food, Really, the question is not about like, can you have a white girl running a taco truck? It's more about like, why is Rick Bayless the most uh, profitable entrepreneur selling Mexican food in the United States, right? And in almost every ethnic food category, the most profitable leader in that industry is a white guy. And honestly, even in situations where we've had chefs of color come up and lead restaurants and do very well for themselves, which I am all for, they are backed by restaurant groups that are financed by white folks. So the people who are making the most money off of their success are not them. In addition to food businesses, a recipe for gentrification also talks about urban agriculture and how it's not the panacea for urban development, food security, food sovereignty that we might think it is. What I liked about your book is that a lot of it problematizes certain aspects of urban agriculture, which is often kind of looked at uncritically and touted by city officials, developers, and also sometimes scholars and activists as a win-win solution for food insecurity and city development. Um, and I know your book has a lot of examples, and I would love to hear in your words, why should we be skeptical of this win-win narrative? I mean, I think we should be skeptical anytime capitalism thinks that the things we're doing to make life livable under capitalism are a win for itself. And again, I'm, I'm kind of attributing a mentality to capitalism, but the question really becomes about access to land. And access to land in urban spaces is so vulnerable for food justice because it's never gonna be the so-called highest and best use of a piece of land because highest and best use gets defined as what's gonna make, a how can a space make the most money? And growing food in the city for all the good things it can do is not really a money maker. You know, a couple of folks have found a couple of niches where they can make a little bit of money off of it, but like, the idea that we were going to have, you know, vertical farms and greenhouses and these like incredibly lucrative urban farms were, is, you know, is tech fantasy. They're great for community building. They're great for placemaking. They're great for giving people a sense of access to grow food and a sense of being able to make their homes in the city, especially people who have, you know, people like immigrants who have agrarian roots or people who don't, but like that kind of stuff, right? It's, you know, Lots of us who, you know, my family has been urban for as long as my ancestral memory goes back. But like, I like that kind of stuff. It's never going to be the thing that helps that piece of land make the most money. And so 
access to land in the city is only tenable to the degree that capitalists kind of acquiesce some particular piece of land to it. Sometimes it can be land that's not otherwise useful. So for example, in North Oakland, in like a very kind of ritzy part of North Oakland, there's a relatively new apartment building that went up, big, big apartment building, um, condos, you know, buying apartments, not renting, uh, with a Whole Foods on the ground floor and maybe the largest rooftop farm in the United States on top. And it's a really cool farm. It's like run by a food justice activist. They have all these really deep relationships with indigenous communities in the in the region. Like it is as kind of cool and interesting and socially just of a of an urban farm as I've ever seen. And they are only there by permission of the developer who built this complex. And they, you know, I believe they pay him rent, which allows him to rent out a space that otherwise would not be at all useful or lucrative, right? So it's a win for him. Um, and if at some point it becomes not lucrative for him, he has every right to tell them to get lost. You know, there'll be an outcry, but he owns that property, right? It is, it may be a win-win, but it's a bigger win for one of them than it is for the other. And of course the developer uses that rooftop farm as a reason to charge more for the apartments in the building. In one chapter, I think her name is Annalena Hopasberg, and she's speaking about the idea of citified sovereignty, which sort of revolves around the idea of community land ownership and land ownership as the only way to really retain autonomous control of local foodways. And I'm just wondering like, if you can unpack a little bit more the idea of community land ownership being central to food justice and maybe how you've seen this play out in practice. It is where every urban food justice organization wants to go is permanent ownership of the land that they live and work on. It is clearly not easy. So Annalena is on the board of and works with a food justice organization in LA. And the Paul Robeson Center is the space they want to build that will have urban gardens and a health center. I've only seen the like um, sketches of the designs for it, but it's like it's beautiful and it's a green building and it really will create access to food justice in many ways in that neighborhood. Like not only will it have a grocery store and space to garden, but also a health clinic and childcare. And like they're really deeply thinking about what... Um, what that neighborhood needs and in part because they are led by folks who are from that neighborhood um which doesn't happen often enough in food justice activism but they are led by a woman named neelam sharma who was uh involved in it's called community services unlimited and it grew out of the black panther party in la um and neelam is an elder and has been involved with it since the days of the Panthers kind of prominence. Um, and Annalena has been on their board for a long time and is really like an engaged activist scholar um, and a wonderful writer. Um, and she, yeah, I mean, I think that they are really leading the way, you know, there's the Detroit, um, there's the Detroit food co-op that's going to be opening in the next couple of years. That's being opened by the Detroit black community food security Alliance um, you know, there are examples, there's Mandela Marketplace in Oakland where they do not own the building, but they have a long-term lease and they've had a grocery store and an office on 7th and, you know, on 7th and Mandela in West Oakland for probably 10 years now. Um, so there are or examples of organizations like getting either good long-term leases or ideally ownership 
And the ideal situation, I think, from the perspectives of these organizations is some kind of land trust or way that they can get land without competing on the open market. And I know in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, the Oakland Community Land Trust was really trying to do that. And they got money, they got government money to be able to do that. But the ways that property values rebounded so quickly from that crisis made it so that by the time they had the money, they couldn't afford anything. So there, it is a, it, it's like, it's definitely the thing to shoot for, but it is a very difficult thing to obtain. Um, and it does allow for all of the good things that Annalena is writing about where, you know, you are no longer vulnerable to market forces in the way that you were. But sometimes it's difficult not to succumb to market forces. And Allison talks about one counterexample of this. That's a very sad story um, where the people's community market was grew out of the people's grocery, which was one of the early food justice organizations in Oakland in the early 2000s. And Rama Mahdi, who is one of the co-founders, has wanted a big grocery store. And he, you know, is an MBA. He worked for years. He worked for developers. And he finally, you know, he had, uh, you could buy shares of it. And he finally launched it. And then, of course, COVID hit. And people didn't come. He was hoping that he would have a mix of customers, folks from the neighborhoods who really needed access to good food and more affluent folks who would come support it because it's a good thing to support. And, um, you know, I know for me personally, like I bought a share in it, um, but I don't think I ever made it over to shop there because I am busy. You know, I've got a job and a commute and two little kids and it is not my neighborhood. And like, I couldn't pull off going there and certainly not regularly. And then COVID hit and I have elder care responsibilities. So I wasn't even going into grocery stores at all. I was only doing curbside pickup. And, you know, I think that, you know, not to make it like all about my own story, but I think there were lots of people who could have been supporting it, who had situations like mine, where we just like, we got old and supporting a food justice business was not the crux of what we had the time and energy to do in the way that we did when we were like young and single. And, you know, I think people's community market didn't last very long. It's already been closed. And I think that is the counterexample where even if you have a long-term lease, the capitalist pressures, you have to make enough money to be able to pay it. Something I really appreciated here was how candidly Allison spoke about the pressures that we all face, you know, and how many times have I signed up for a CSA or I've paid for the journalism at Modern Farmer with the intentions of being able to support projects that I believe in, but various competing responsibilities. Although, of course, I'm lucky that at the moment my largest piece of care work is for a dog, um, and just general busy lives and side projects like FFJ, in the end, take up too much time to meaningfully engage or invest in those resources. I think that this encapsulates quite well one of the central messages from a recipe for gentrification, which is that work relating to the right to the city, changing places, food and culture, food justice, racial justice, is inherently messy, and nobody's going to get it right every single time. And that's why having case studies like those highlighted in the book are so important to reflect and look back on and think about charting more just ways forward. Finally, we wrap it up with a question. 
It's been almost three years since Alison's book came out, and she's wondering if the context that surrounds food gentrification has been changing. So some of what I've been seeing is that housing prices are rising astronomically. Land values are rising. You know, it's not just housing, commercial land values too, are rising astronomically in absent any of the cultural markers that we usually associate with gentrification. You know, the rent is too damn high, whether you live in a gentrifying neighborhood or not. And that means that people are vulnerable to displacement, regardless of whether the urban farm or the coffee shop or the farm to table restaurant is in their neighborhood or not. And I think that really pushes us to question this idea of green gentrification and green gentrification with regard to food, because and this would take someone with a different set of research skills than I have, but what is the relationship between these markers of gentrification and accelerating housing prices as city landscapes seem to be driven more by these global capitalist processes? The relationship between food and gentrification is largely how do we do the work of making sure that one another are fed and have sustenance in the context of these rising global economic pressures. Oh, it's great. I'm so glad we could connect. Thank you so much. This has been fun. I haven't thought about this stuff in a little while. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this, either in the comments, by email, or in social media. In the meantime, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of our city issue.